Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello and welcome to episode one of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, I'm very excited to say we have Dr. Genevieve Nelson. Jen's the co-founder and CEO of the Kokoda Track Foundation, working in 16 provinces across Papua New Guinea. Not only does Jen have a doctorate in cross-cultural and educational psychology from Western Sydney University, she's almost got too many awards to count. To give you a few, she won the Not-for-Profit Leadership Excellence Award. She was a finalist in the 2013 Young Australian of the Year Awards and the 2012 Telstra Businesswoman of the Year Awards. She was named in the 100 Women of Influence Award by Westpac and the Australian Financial Review. And in addition to all of that, she's walked the Kokoda track 20 times, which is 20 times more than most people. Let's get straight to it, Jen. People often say PNG is a failed state. What do you think? All right. Well, let's jump straight in, shall we? <laughs> Not starting with the light questions. Um, look, I think that that question uh, is a very complex one, and I think it has both a simple answer and a more complex answer. Uh, and I think the simple answer is is no. PNG is is not a failed state. Um, if we take the sort of more traditional definition of what a failed state is, it's a state whose political or economic system has become so weak that the government is no longer uh, in control and where basic conditions and responsibilities of the government are, are not functioning properly. And so I think clearly PNG uh, is, is not a failed state if we take that definition. However, I think we need to look a bit more, more broadly and recognise and acknowledge that PNG is grappling with some, some very, very uh, big challenges that are, that are widespread and entrenched. And uh, in 2015, of course, we saw uh, the end of the era of the Millennium Development Goals, um, where we were tracking towards those those eight global goals, uh, and we transitioned across to the new era of, uh, of tracking and reporting against the Sustainable Development Goals. And uh, at the end of 2015, um, PNG uh, unfortunately was in a situation where it did not meet any of its Millennium Development Goals. The poverty gap remained unchanged with 2 million people uh, still poor or facing hardship. The school retention rate didn't show any improvement. Um, literacy levels were, were low and unchanged. Um, uh, e even more tragically, the under five mortality rate and the maternal mortality rate uh, was high and there was no improvement. Coverage of immunization, immunizations for children was low. Um, the list you know, really did go on and on. Um, and so these are some, some very big and widespread and real challenges that PNG uh, was grappling with three years ago and continues to grapple with um, as we're moving uh, into this new SDG reporting. 
Housing Era. On that topic, now that PNG has transitioned into the SDG era, are you more hopeful that they will meet their SDG targets than they did their MDG? Um, look, I am I am more hopeful, um, and I, th- I think there's a few um, contextual things that that really need to be taken into account. Um, I, I think you know part of the reason for the the lack of success under the MDG era, I, th- I think part of the reasons were, were quite technical. Uh, data collection in PNG uh, is is poor, uh, and many government departments don't have um, the necessary mechanisms in place to actually be able to to track progress towards a lot of these things. Um, anyone who has who has visited or travelled throughout PNG or flown across it will know just what a difficult and complex place it is. Uh, the geographical terrain um, is is just you know, quite extraordinary in places. It is it is uh, mountainous and and brutal, um, and with that terrain comes um, such great cultural and linguistic diversity. There's 850 distinct languages in PNG, and then all the different vernacular and and cultures that that come from that it makes it a, a, a very difficult place. To, to access, uh, to deliver services and to, to seek the change that we all desire. Um, of course, there are then governance and corruption issues um, in the most recent Corruption Perceptions Index um, that's done by Transparency International every year. PNG was ranked 135 out of 180 countries. So there are widespread challenges, um, you know, with, with corrupt and fraudulent individuals and, and systems in place that, um, you know, did prevent uh, as, as tracking towards those MDGs and, and if not addressed in this new era, will still make progress towards the SDGs slow. Um, all that said, however, PNG is a land that is just so rich in natural resources um, and the land ownership system across PNG facilitates the rural population to have access to, to land, to forest, to marine resources, um, enabling the subsistence farming lifestyle to thrive and to support 90% of the population. Um, but we do have to look at new ways of, of working towards the delivery of some of those, those you know, fundamental human rights and those services that we um, so take for granted here in Australia. When you spoke about the terrain in PNG, um, you reminded me of what is so wonderful about the Kokoda Track Foundation, among many things, is the areas that you manage to get to. I love your Facebook and Instagram updates on how you've reached these incredibly remote places with planes, boats, cars, whatever it takes. And I think that is fantastic. And it sort of brings me to the next thing I wanted to ask you about. When I noticed when I started working in PNG and I told people back home that I was working up there, a lot of Australians were so unaware of our history with PNG, not only the fact that PNG is a former colony of Australia, but also our our wartime history and that really, really incredible legacy that we have um, between our Australian soldiers and the PNG population. And I know that that legacy of camaraderie is largely what Kokoda Track Foundation is built on. So can you talk a bit about the importance of that legacy to your work? 
Yeah, absolutely. And thanks for the question. Um, as you say, KTF uh, was absolutely built um, on that relationship uh, between Australia and PNG that was forged um, along the Kokoda Track 75 years ago. Um, and, and of course, wasn't just forged along the Kokoda Track, it was forged through the, the cooperation between the Australian forces and PNG forces and, of course, this amazing population um, that were referred to as the, as the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angels uh, who came together um, and helped Australia uh, defeat the Japanese across many, many campaigns and battles across PNG and, of course, in the broader South Pacific. Um, but you're right, you know, a lot of people in Australia don't recognise that PNG is, in fact, our nearest neighbour. In fact, only 3.6 kilometres separates our, um, our two nations um, from Australia's Saibai Island uh, looking across to the mainland in Western Province. It's only 3.6 kilometres. And when the tide goes down, you can actually walk across. Um, and yet, of all nearest neighbours in the world, no two have a greater disparity of poverty and wealth as Australia and PNG do. And that's something that I think when Australians hear that, it's quite shocking to them. Um, of course, there's that enormous legacy that was born um, out of uh, the, the what happened during World War II um, in various battles and campaigns that took place across the country. Um, and then, of course, after the war, PNG became a territory of Australia um, until it saw until it gained uh, independence. And so I think Australians are quite quick to look over PNG to other parts of the Pacific and to Asia and often don't uh, recognise and value the importance, um, you know, of, of this great relationship between our two countries. Yeah, and I, I was so grateful when I started working there to learn about that relationship firsthand and be able to share that with people. And I think it is gradually changing, which is exciting. But KTF has been in PNG for quite some time now. Uh, I think, is it more than 10 years? It is, yeah. We were founded in 2003. Wow. Okay. So quite a long time. How have the overarching goals of KTF's work changed in PNG since you began? So KTF's goals have changed quite um, substantially, actually, over that time. Um, from 2003 for the first six or seven years of operations in PNG, we acted uh, much more like a traditional foundation in that we ran a, a scholarship program. This was before PNG's introduction um, of tuition fee-free policy in 2012. It was very expensive to send your children to school. We're talking, you know, equivalent hundreds of dollars to send your child to primary school, thousands to send them to high school. Um, and so over those first six or seven years, uh, we ran this scholarship program supporting kids to get an education. We funded about 2,000 children to go through school in that time. But what we realised over those years is that you couldn't run a scholarship program in isolation of other support and that we had to start looking at things much more holistically. There was no point paying for the school fees to send a child to school if there was no teacher at that school or the teacher wasn't properly trained uh, or they weren't being paid or the school wasn't properly resourced. Same as you jump over into health, if the community in which that school was located, if they didn't have access to, um, to an aid post, to a health worker, to clean water and sanitation. Um, and we realised that it really is the combination of all of these elements that, that creates healthy communities and environments in which children can actually thrive when they go to school. 
So we changed, uh, we flipped things on its head, really. We changed our model. We changed our theory of change. Um, these days, our uh, what we call our statement of purpose is to work with people and communities to improve the lives and futures of Papua New Guineans. Um, and we do that by working across four main programmatic pillars, and they are education, health, livelihoods and leadership and we believe very much that it's it's the combination of those four things that is going to create real and lasting change um, in PNG. And I love this um, this quote that I read from um, from Sir Charles Lapani who of course was PNG's High Commissioner to Australia for about 10 years um, and he said that people are not poor because they lack means to live. Subsistence farming allows PNG people to live, but poverty is due to a lack of access to government services such as health and education. And this is something that we we take really seriously. So over the years, we've grown our geographical footprint. Um, we have operations in about 50 communities uh, within the Kokoda Track catchment region across the Oro and Central provinces, where depending on, on the needs and the context, uh, you know, as we go community by community, uh, we respond again across those four programmatic areas. We might need to build a classroom or an aid post, um, although building things, that's the easy part. It's very tempting in development to come and, and and just build something that you can put your name on or your plaque on. The challenge comes in the long-term operations of those facilities, which is where our strengths are and where our passions are. Um, so we might, you know, train a teacher or a community health worker, provide them with ongoing professional development and support, resourcing of their facilities, um, support their their postings in schools and aid posts, but we, we tend to try to just do that for a finite period of time. We don't want to be working in communities um, that we are today in 10 years' time. It's really important that we build those, those exit strategies in. And then, of course, we've got um, a couple of our projects, which we'll probably come to over the course of this chat, which we've taken to scale um, right across PNG. And as you said in your opening, we're now working in 16 provinces right across PNG. And I would hope um, that by 2020, we have a presence in every, every province across the country. That's so fantastic to hear and so inspiring. I love that quote as well. I think I'd heard that quote before. And it's just so true. Something that was said to me a few years ago when I started working in this sector was you should always be trying to put yourself out of a job. Essentially, you should always have a long term exit strategy. And if you see yourself staying where you are for 10, 20 years, you're probably doing it wrong. And to hear you say that just then it just resonated so much with me. Can I ask then about the change that you've seen in the communities that you started working with many years ago? Where are those communities now? Yeah, so since we changed um, to this more holistic model of working in development, uh, we've seen some some great changes, um, particularly in those communities dotted along the Kokoda track itself. Um, and it is important whilst I talk about this to remember that the Kokoda track, the, the 12 or so villages dotted from Oa's Corner to Kokoda, they are a bit of a microcosm within PNG. They're not reflective of the whole country because you have this extraordinary um, trekking industry that has been built around the communities and offers opportunities for villages to access, um, you know, livelihood and income generating opportunities. But what we've seen along the track is a number of players coming together, working in partnership, 
um, f- to achieve um, development outcomes that have been uh, identified by the communities themselves. Um, so you've had a great injection of funds and resources into something called the Kokoda Initiative, which is a joint PNG and Australian government task force, uh, which Part of it looks after the, 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 the management and administration of the trekking industry, but a big part of it is around improving the lives and development outcomes of the communities. Then you have civil society. So you have groups like us, the Kokoda Track Foundation, groups like Rotary, groups like um, No Roads to Health and No Roads to Education who've come together um, alongside our PNG government and Australian government partners. Um, and then, of course, you've got the private sector, the, the trekking industry who are there, who are creating all these employment opportunities. Um, and we've just got some fantastic success stories and examples of how collaboration can actually really work and affect change. You know, we might have um, the, a representative from the Australian government call us up and say, hey, we're about to put a classroom and a new staff house into Minari Village. We've got um, a budget to do this. This has been identified by the school board and by the community as something that's their next priority. Um, will KTF, whilst we go through this infrastructure process, will KTF train a teacher Will you then post that teacher into that school um, and provide resources for the operations of that school? And then they might know, go to No Roads, who do great work in professional development, and get them to come in and provide that ongoing support for teachers. And this has happened right along the Kokoda track, where today just about every village along the track now has access to an operating elementary and primary school and an operating health facility. And that's very, very different, um, certainly to when I first walked the Kokoda track um, 18, 18 years ago now. That's so wonderful to hear. That collaboration is, is so important and it's great that there is so much collaboration happening along the track. Is there similar collaboration happening throughout PNG or is it more difficult for organisations to work together in other areas? Again, there are some great examples of collaboration happening, um, certainly in recent times. Um, it is harder elsewhere in PNG um, due to a lot of that geographical diversity um, and there is such great need across the rest of the country. So often you might have one NGO working in one village in a remote province, um, not even realising that there's another NGO just a couple of mountain ranges away. Um, there, there's a, a, a strong desire amongst civil society, uh, amongst government to start um, more and more opportunities for, for, for dialogue, for the sharing of information, sharing of resources so that we, um, it, it's, it, in the rest of PNG, it's not so much about avoiding duplication, but it's more about, okay, working working out where we can come together and be, be more effective in, in a joint response to some of these really, really big challenges. And I think the Kokoda track as well is an example of where tourism can really work. We, we see in other countries investment in tourism can have some really damaging effects on, on culture and on the natural environment, but it seems that on the Kokoda track, investment in tourism has done wonderful things, which is so great to see. Yeah, it, it really has. It's um, you know, it's changed changed things for those local communities. And tourism across PNG has so much potential. I have been super super privileged in the last couple of years to have been travelling right across this amazing country because some of these 
projects that were rolling out. And, you know, from, from the surfing and, and fishing up in New Ireland to the diving in Tufi, to the bird watching up in the highlands, to the cultural festivals and experiences, there is so much potential and so much opportunity for communities to lift themselves out of poverty through creating, you know, income generating opportunities that are linked to a thriving tourism industry. Uh, some big challenges to overcome uh, before we get there, but I think it's definitely on the horizon and has to be part of PNG's, you know, planning towards meeting these SDGs. It reminds me of a wonderful experience I had in Vanuatu a few years ago. I went to the island of Tanna just after they'd had the earthquake and quite a few households on the island had set up their own B&Bs and started advertising rooms in in their homes on Airbnb and it was so popular because tourists were really looking for an experience like that. I think where we're not sort of fabricating authenticity, but it is it is a genuine, authentic cultural experience. And I see so much potential in that space in PNG, but I think one of the barriers we face is changing this narrative in Australia so that Australians know this is a great country for you to go to. You you are going to see so many wonderful things. How do we change that narrative, do you think? Um, that's a really good question. I think um, so much of it is about broadened perspectives um, and, and, and you know, real life, you just said then, authentic um, encounters and engagements um, across our two cultures, across our two nations. You know, I, I can honestly say that in 18 years of being involved in, in the Kokoda track and seeing this trekking industry evolve around me, uh, I've never met anyone who has who has crossed Kokoda, whose life hasn't been changed somehow, some in um, often quite dramatic ways, a bit like myself, um, in other, others in less dramatic ways. But it is so extraordinary to watch these encounters unfold. You know, when a trekker, um, you know, comes comes to PNG with their preconceived ideas of of what they'll be encountering, uh, and instead they meet these these communities who just welcome them with this, these outpourings of, of generosity and their porters who hold their hand across the entire crossing and pluck them off the side of a mountain when they're about to fall down and it just absolutely changes them. So, you know, obviously that's about, about physical encounter and experiences, creating more opportunities for Papua New Guineans to come to Australia on exchange programs, um, to study, on work visas um, and just really opening up those opportunities for authentic dialogue, um, things things will slowly start start to shift. I think absolutely. And you just mentioned bringing Papua New Guineans to Australia, which reminded me of one of your programs that I absolutely adore. That is the Archer Leaders Program. And last year, I had the opportunity to meet your 2017 leadership cohort when they were doing their Australian tour. And I can honestly say, Jen, it was one of the highlights of my year. They were just so wonderful. And and hearing about their aspirations for their careers in PNG and their take on, on development and governance issues, it was really wonderful. And it highlighted to me the importance of having these forums for dialogue. That's something that a lot of them mentioned was that they would really like to pursue roles in the private sector in PNG. Quite a few of them were really interested in in business and 
and the private sector. So how important is it for this next generation of leaders to take up these really important roles in in the corporate sector and in governance in PNG? Yeah, look, absolutely. You hit the nail on the head there. It, it's, it's not just um, important for private sector, but it's important that we have you know, strong, visionary, committed, um, youthful, uh, passionate PNG leaders um, across all sectors, private, government and civil society. Um, the Archer Leaders Program has has been one of my favourites as well. Every time I'm around the Archer Leaders, I'm just you know filled with so much hope and optimism for the future. Uh, it's been running for eight years now where we take a cohort of final year tertiary students on a 12-month what we call an intensive experiential leadership development journey that involves uh, mentoring, work experience placements, community projects, and then, of course, their exchange program to Australia. And that program um, is it, it's based on the theory of adaptive leadership out of the Harvard Business School, uh, which is that um, adaptive challenges need to be um, solved with a different mindset and, and, and don't have known solutions. And we have to, you know, look at some of the challenges that are facing you know, us here in Australia, but of course in PNG uh, with a different set of, set of tools and, and perspectives. Um, you know, we have high hopes for our alumni. Um, they are all in, engaged in either full-time or part-time employment at the moment. A lot have gone on to do further studies, masters, PhDs, etc. Some are studying overseas all have a commitment to PNG and to going back, um, and we absolutely believe that in that alumni we have future PNG politicians, we have future you know, head of businesses, head of NGOs uh, in PNG, um, and we think they're positioned pretty well to to be in positions of of good influence in PNG. Um, PNG had its national elections in in July last year, um, and quite tragically we saw uh, no female members of parliament elected into the current um, uh, parliament. And so this is something that just absolutely has to change. Um, and we know that the, you know, the prime minister and various politicians have got some ideas around how they can affect that change. Uh, but we've got a great alumni of some very passionate um visionary young young women Papua New Guineans who we reckon are poised for the challenge. There is so much hopefulness with with the cohorts of, of Archer leaders that have come through your program and I think a really important point that you made is that all of them want to go back to PNG. That's where they want to have their careers and I think um, something that we see increasingly is young people from developing countries move overseas. Once they obtain a skill set, they want to go and work in another country and pursue their careers there. And it was so inspiring for me to see these young people from PNG who don't want to do that. They want to improve the development outcomes in PNG because that's mm. what's closest to their heart. And I think that's really incredible. The next Sort of moving along a bit here, I wanted to talk to you about your corporate partnerships. So KTF has some really some really significant organisations that you work with, including Solar Buddy, Newcrest Mining, ExxonMobil, many others. Can you talk about the importance of those corporate partnerships to your work and any challenges that you faced in establishing them? 
Yeah, sure. So our um, partnerships with with various corporates have been um, vital to KTF since the beginning. We've always had a very diverse um, revenue stream. Um, these days, we do get government funding from both the PNG and Australian governments, which is fantastic. But really, for the first sort of twelve years of our operations, our funding came through corporate partnerships um, and and philanthropy and general public support, which was which was lovely. Enabled us to. Be be, you know, efficient and, and responsive, and, um, and it was a great way to operate. Um, over the last eighteen months, we've been on quite a journey where we've expanded our operations from working just across the Oro and Central provinces in those fifty communities I spoke to before, to rolling out um, one and then some other of our projects to now um, sixteen provinces across the country. And um, if if you don't mind, I might talk a little bit about that project and then how some of those corporate partnerships have come about. So eighteen uh, months ago now, we were alerted to a situation in P. Um, whereby we found out there was a large cohort of partially trained elementary teachers right across the country. They'd been trained under what we're now calling the old system, where over the past two decades, the teachers had to do six weeks of training in year one, then go home, work with their communities, build a little elementary school, put their skills into practice, Mm -hmm. come back in year two and do another six weeks, go home, practice, practice, come back for their final instalment in year three, and then they would become fully qualified, certified, and transfer to government payroll. However, for 7,500 of these teachers, they'd started year one. Some had even gone on to complete year two, uh, but 7,500 trainee teachers weren't given the opportunity to complete. And yet, these teachers were and are upholding the rural elementary schooling system because they were all volunteering um, or they were just getting very, very small government allowances. And some had been doing this for 20 years. Um, we came along, we found this out, we started asking questions. Um, we we wanted to know why there was no urgency around responding to this, particularly because we were about to transition across to the new system, which has come into play this year, where teachers will now have to do a 12-month certificate of elementary teaching. But there was no plan in place to finish off the training of all these partially trained teachers, and they were therefore, in essence, going to be exited from the system. Um, so we, you know, being an organisation that's passionate about education, very experienced in training teachers, we run our Kokoda College where we train um, elementary teachers there. Uh, we wanted to do something about this, so we entered into an MOA with the National Department of Education and the PNG Education Institute um, that authorised us to then go into the provinces and deliver this final instalment of the training that the teachers needed. We piloted it at the end of two. 2016 in our home province of Oro, where we trained 330 teachers. And it was a beautiful example of how effective partnerships can work. Um, And whenever we go into a province, it's always a three-way partnership between KTF, 
PNGEI, who are responsible for the accreditation of teachers, and in the Provincial Department of Education. And all three organisations have to commit funding, have to commit resources, people in kind, and work together to deliver this training. And since um, ORO, we've then rolled it out to 10 more provinces, training just under 2,500 teachers over the last 18 months. Um, we've got another 1,500 teachers across four remaining provinces that we are doing in 2018. And in fact, last Monday, we just finally kicked off uh, in Sundown Province, where we've got 315 of these trainees on site in one of the most remote locations in the country. You were talking before about how we you know, often choose the difficult way to get into places. Well, this place, you've got to take two flights and then a four-hour dinghy ride to get there. Um, and our goal is to complete the training of, of all of these partially trained teachers. Um, and the success that we've had to date has absolutely only been possible thanks to our partnership with the private sector. As we've gone to each new province, we've gone, well, who is here? Who is here already? Who is invested in this place? Who not just has a responsibility under the old sort of corporate social responsibility model to invest and improve lives and outcomes in this location, but who has an opportunity to work with us so that they can, you know, invest in these teachers, invest in the next generation of children so that their business operating environments become better and become, you know, a, a better place for their businesses to thrive. And it's just been fantastic. We've had, as you said, Newcrest Mining support our teacher training um, in Morabe Province and in New Ireland where their operations are. We've had Bougainville Copper help us over in Bougainville. Um, we've had ExxonMobil help us in Central Province. The list goes, goes on and on. Um, you asked before about challenges, and there, there are, of course, challenges uh, in everything that we do. Um, the challenges in partnering with the private sector is that there, at the moment, is a lack of consensus in how the various corporate entities work with NGOs. There's no, um, you know, systematic processes in place in how they they do their partnerships, in how, um, in, in what, you know, MOUs we put in place and how we report. So every time we enter into a new engagement, we're quickly trying to catch up and work out, you know, how do we adapt to this particular corporate partner's systems when in fact we've been trying to encourage them to look at things a bit differently as well and look to us as also being the experts um, in what we do. You know, we've been through some of the most rigorous due diligence processes uh, in terms of seeking our uh, membership with the Australian Council for International Development, our accreditation as a full member with the with DFAT's ANCP program. Um, so we're really trying to make it a two-way process now with our corporate partners so that there's reciprocal learning going on. But it's been a wonderful, wonderful experience and enabled us at the end of, end of the day to train two and a half thousand teachers for PNG. Jen, I just felt so happy listening to all of that. That is, Teach for Tomorrow is the most wonderful program and that is just an incredible success story. And you said something that particularly resonated with me, that the businesses and the private sector entities that are, are in the communities that you're working in, they know that they benefit from improved development outcomes. If you've got high-functioning schools, well-trained teachers and well-educated students, everyone wins. There's, there's, there's no losers in that equation. And it's great to hear that the private sector is recognising that up there. 
changing the subject a little bit, but still on the topic of the private sector, you recently spoke at the 34th Australia PNG Business Forum, which I believe was up in Brisbane. Can you talk a bit about what was discussed in the forum and, and the relationships that are building between Australian and PNG businesses? Yeah, sure. It was um, it was it was a wonderful, wonderful forum, and we were delighted to participate. Um, they haven't had a not-for-profit session for a few years now, so it was great that they, um, you know, enabled this session and 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 for KTF and three of our peers to be able to speak. The focus of this year's forum was on preparing for APEC. Of course, PNG is in its um, year at the moment of hosting APEC, and there's the, uh, the the main event in November, which is the gathering of the of the key leaders. Um, there were representatives at the conference from, from both PNG and Australian government, private sector um, and civil society, which was really great to see. The conference was pretty wide ranging, covered a lot of topics. Um, of course, the preparations for APEC, um, the need for the diversification of the agricultural and tourism sectors, which we've touched on a bit today already. Um, there was a great session on the current major health issues um, that are facing PNG um, and what the business community's role is in tackling some of these, in particular things like drug-resistant tuberculosis. Um, and then, of course, there were the various updates on the resource and extractive projects. But in our um, session, I was delighted to be in the presence um, of my colleagues from the Oil Search Foundation, Australian Business Volunteers um, and Business for Development. And amongst all four of us, there was this big, big focus on this idea of shared value or corporate social opportunity um, and how, you know, we need the business community, of course, we need partnerships with the business community. As I mentioned before, often those partnerships allow us to be um, more nimble and more efficient um, and take greater risks that often lead to innovation. Uh, but the business community needs partnerships with civil society as well so that they can, as, as you say, you know, really improve those, those environments um, that enables them to, to do better business. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a great opportunity. We, we were delighted to take part, of, part in it. It's opened up um, lots of networking opportunities for all four um, of our organisations and, um, and we just hope that we can partner more and more with private sector, um, both in PNG, but those organisations who are based in Australia who have a vested interest in PNG as well. Um, and you touched on earlier the partnership that we have with Solar Buddy, which um, is also a, a really, really interesting one. So Solar Buddy, that they're an Australian charity, um, and their mission is to um, end energy poverty across the globe um, by lighting up the lives of one child at a time. Um, and they have this fantastic program that they started running just in schools across Australia, but now they run it in corporates right across the country country where either the children or adults um, come together, they learn about energy poverty, they learn about uh, if the lights are coming to us, they learn about Papua New Guinea, Australia's nearest neighbour, they learn about what life is like where you, when you don't have access to the electricity grid, of which you know only 10% of Papua New Guineans are connected to the grid. And then they actually get to do this cool exercise where they um, assemble a little solar light. They actually connect all the wires together and they waterproof it and they screw it all together. They write a little letter 
to um, their solar buddy in Papua New Guinea, and then those lights get sent to us, and we get to distribute them um, to children, you know, living in rural and remote um, communities across the country. And just over the last 12 months, we've done almost 10,000 of these lights, uh, which is fantastic. It's changing the lives of kids. They can do their homework after dark. Mums and dads can work on small businesses. They reduce their reliance on kerosene. Women and girls are safer walking around the village. But it also comes back to that person-to-person engagement and, you know, this idea of broadening perspectives, broadening awareness, um, actually enabling a child or an adult in Australia to learn about Papua New Guinea and actually connect in a meaningful way, way. And it's fantastic. And we're delighted both for Solar Buddy and also for ourselves and the kids whose lives we're lighting up that the corporate community in Australia have embraced it. Um, and we would you know, really encourage anyone who's listening to this to check out the Solar Buddy website as well and get their organisation involved. It actually wasn't until I met you last year and spoke about Solar Buddy that I became aware of energy poverty. It was just not an area I had come across and it fascinated me. And since then, I've done a lot more research into it and it, it does just have such a profound effect on human development. So I think what Solar Buddy is doing is, is so impactful and a wonderful partnership that you have with them. You mentioned as well that the business sector is becoming involved in things like responding to drug-resistant TB, which is such a serious epidemic up there at the moment. And I think that is a great indicator of how business is sort of an emerging provider of aid almost. It's a very non-traditional source of aid. It's not who we usually think of when we think of who's responding to TB. And I think similarly, we're seeing emerging donors like China having an increasing presence in in PNG and throughout the Pacific. And of course, that draws a lot of questions regarding the role of Australia's aid program, the amount of aid we donate. And also, sorry, I want to take back the word donate, the amount of aid we invest and also the effectiveness of our aid program up there. Where do you stand on these discussions about Australian aid to PNG, both the amount that we invest and the effectiveness of our aid? Oh, look, another great question, and and you're right, it is an investment um, in, you know, these really, really important challenges that we've been talking about in PNG. It's, again, a complex question that doesn't have a simple answer. Um, PNG is Australia's largest aid recipient um, at the moment. However, our aid budget is at an all-time low. Um, And this investment is also complicated uh, with Australia's investment in the Manus Island Detention Centre and having directed some aid dollars uh, into those operations. As we've spoken about earlier, there's been very little progress over the past two decades. You know, this nil meeting of the MDGs, uh, PNG's human development indicators remain the Pacific's worst um, and among the lowest worldwide. So, so there are some you know, um, some some statistics there and some issues that would indicate that, you know, on the whole, not much progress has been made. That said, there are wonderful examples that 
I can talk to, that I have seen, that I've experienced, um, you know, w- witnessing firsthand the great effectiveness of Australian aid at work in PNG. NGOs are often supported through DFAT's ANCP program, and they deliver a range of absolutely essential services, the operations of schools and health facilities, water and sanitation initiatives, teacher training and development, the list goes on. Um, And all of DFAT's ANCP partners, um, they're listed on their website. Anyone who's interested in finding out more about them can simply go onto the DFAT website, look at who are the partner organisations, who are the fully accredited members, who are the base accredited members, and then go to those respective NGOs and look at their websites, look at their annual reports, find out about their projects and their impact that they're having in PNG. Um, Churches across Papua New Guinea deliver many of the country's health facilities and do a fantastic job at that. Um, Of course, they are under-resourced, um, but they do receive essential support from Australian aid, and, and the you know the simple case is without that aid, people would die, children would not have access to immunisations, women would not have access to skilled birth attendants. Likewise, in the education space, Australian aid has been critical for the supply of things like textbooks and curriculum materials to schools that otherwise are just not getting through via um, the PNG government systems. We spoke a bit before about the Kokoda Initiative as being a great example of how aid um, has had a a number of success stories along the track, but particularly um, it's been in the strength of that coordination um, and that collaboration between the various players who are operating in that region. Are there downfalls? Absolutely. Um, often aid um, or, or the expenditure of aid requires uh, consultants, um, you know, private sector organisations with big overheads and administration costs. Um, there, there sometimes is a lack of collaboration and transparency, a lack of data sharing, resource sharing. So, of course, a lot of strengthening work to be done. Um, and, 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 you know, you mentioned before the, the role of the private sector. Um, I, I really do think Australian aid um, over the past five years have, have recognised the importance of private sector as having this third seat at the table um, and how we have to involve them in everything we do. And whilst it may not sometimes appear obvious, you know, what is the private sector's role in responding to drug-resistant tuberculosis, well, they employ a workforce of people who, at the end of the day, are often going home to settlements in Port Moresby um, or to, you know, shanty towns set up on the fringes of provincial towns um, and and are having, you know, to, to, to deal with lack of access to education, lack of access to clean water, lack of access to, um, to, to aid posts and health workers. And often their first point of call um, is the private sector and businesses that they going going to work at. Absolutely. I think that's such a fantastic take on our aid program and I think you've drawn attention to the importance of aid effectiveness and that we have to recognize that our aid program is saving lives and that we invest in aid. We we are investing in people's lives. 
Absolutely. And therefore, it should be increased. I should have also mentioned I am (laughs) 100% an advocate for increasing Australia's aid budget to, to, you know, globally and, of course, to PNG. I think that's a fantastic note to end on. Jen, this has been such an interesting discussion. Thank you so much. You have so much wisdom and I'm so grateful for your leadership in this sector and so grateful that we could have you on the show today. If our listeners have any questions for you, uh, if that's okay with you, I'll let them send those to me via our social media channels. And then if you've got a chance to respond to some of those, we'll upload those onto our channels because I know that, that anyone would benefit from hearing some more of your wisdom. Love to. Yeah, anytime. Please do. (laughs) Wonderful. Okay. Thanks so much, Jen. Thanks, Rachel. Bye now. Wow. How incredible was Jen? I was so thrilled to have Jen as our first guest on Goodwill Hunters. And that interview was truly inspiring. And uh, if nothing else, I've walked away from it totally keen on doing the Kokoda track one day. So that's a new bucket list item for me that I never thought would be on there. I'm really keen to hear your takeaways from the show today. So please share with me your thoughts and any aha moments you had on our social media channels. Uh, And if you love the podcast, please like and subscribe. We've got some amazing content coming your way over the next couple of weeks and I'm thrilled to have you on board. So thanks so much and tune in next week.